Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Well, good morning. We are back in Ephesians, and we're starting uh, chapter 2. I've titled this Alive Together with Christ. And so we have finally, after like six weeks, completed Ephesians chapter 1. I think we should give ourselves a round of applause here. We finally made it through. And uh, we're going to see that there's a pretty big transition here. He's still talking about the same things, but we're going to see. We're going to go from the exaltation of Christ to where we once were. It's a pretty stark contrast. So just to talk about Ephesians 1 a little bit more, we've talked about the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We saw how Paul prayed later for an apocalypse, for uh, revelation of Jesus, and for them to more fully understand who Jesus is and how Jesus has changed the world, um, how he has been exalted and how that exaltation took place. We saw last week that that was by uh, not acting in the way that we would expect it, not using power the way that the world uses power, but by dying on a cross and then being raised from the dead. I want to point out, too, something that I think John said, and I think something that I neglected to mention last week was This apocalypse is not just a one-time thing. This revelation of Jesus is not just a one-time thing. We continue to pray for deeper and deeper revelation of who Jesus is, uh, what he's doing now, what he's accomplished, how we can live in that new reality. So we continue to pray for that. And part of that involves a new way of living, not just individually, but how do we live as a community? that's been changed by Christ and by what he's accomplished. So before we tackle our question for today, I do want to bring back our four themes that we've been talking about. Uh, The first one is community-oriented versus individualistic. We've seen uh, throughout Ephesians already how every you should be translated y'all. We've been reading it that way. Uh, We've seen we versus you language. We're going to see that again uh, this morning. So we're going to continue to talk about that. The second thing is new creation and new order in the things of Jesus, and uh, we're going to see a little bit about that this morning too. And then the last two things are about unity and division, unity in Christ between Jew and Gentile. Now that's more of something that we're going to handle in a couple weeks, Um, and then unity between heaven and earth, and then finally division and uh, battle with the powers of the world, which is something we really focused on last week. So as we head into Ephesians chapter 2, our question for the week are... What was our condition before Christ, and how did God act to change our lives? So that's what we're going to see this morning, looking at Alive Together with Christ. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin by reading our section for this week and next week. And just like John and I sort of split up the prayer for an apocalypse, I'm going to split up uh, this section, this first 10 verses of chapter 2, into two different teachings. And we're going to do the last half of Ephesians chapter 2 in two teachings, but I actually won't be involved in either one of those teachings, so you'll get a two-week break from me, Um, and then we'll keep moving on into chapter 3 and beyond. Uh, So in Ephesians chapter 2, like I said, we ended Ephesians chapter 1 looking at Christ, who's raised and seated in the right hand in heavenly places, far above all the powers, subjected only to his Father, and then... In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the first thing that Paul said by Revelation is, and y'all were dead in trespasses and sins. (laughs) So he goes straight from the exaltation of Christ 
into where we were, which is dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins, in which y'all once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Two of the most important words in the Bible come next. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace y'all have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So one of the keys we're going to see as we move through this section is how important it is to read this in a more communal uh, sense and not an individualistic sense. And one of the things that Tim Mackey points out about this section, uh, 2, 1 through 10, as related to 11 through 22, is that Paul is essentially telling the same story. I know we're not reading 11 through 22 this morning, but uh, we'll get to it. Uh, but we're t- he's telling the same story from two different perspectives. And in 2, 1 through 10, he sort of, Tim Mackey sort of calls it the, the cosmic perspective of our salvation. And then in 11 through 22, he talks about the covenantal view of our salvation. So, this is a summary. I have a slide up here that shows the summary of what Tim Mackey says about the four sort of key ideas here from Ephesians 1, uh, 2, 1 through 10. The first is their former predicament. The, the Ephesian church's former predicament was dead in trespasses and sins. The second thing is, what are the agents of death here? Well, the main primary agent of death, we're going to talk about three different things that lead to this death, but the primary agent is the ruler of the authority of the air. We're going to see who that is. You probably have a pretty good idea of who that is, but we'll, uh, we'll name him. Uh, then third, we see God's intervention. Through his mercy, he made us alive together with Christ. And the new creation result is we are alive with Christ We are raised with him, we are seed with him, and therefore we have been created for a new way of living, which involves good works. And so we're going to see these same four things, the predicament, the agents of death, the intervention, the new creation result, from a covenantal perspective. We're going to be able to tick off the same same boxes. Um, But here we're talking about cosmic sort of powers, cosmic language. Um, So it's We'll see the story from both perspectives. So let's go back to verse 1 and start reading just these first five or six verses, what we're going to talk about today. Chapter 2, verse 1, And y'all were dead in in the trespasses and sins. So y'all, who is he talking about here? He's talking about the Ephesian, mostly Gentile church here. Y'all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which y'all once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom now he says we all. He now invites them into the same relationship that he has experienced 
uh, the we's, the, the Jews, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so here he sort of says, you Gentiles had this problem over here, dealing with idolatry and things that the Jews didn't deal with. But yeah, we were also dealing with parts of these problems as well. And he understands too that everyone was dead. We were all dead in trespasses and sins. Everyone was. What I think that's really interesting about this is, uh, we tend to, especially in our modern Western world, we tend to view things, uh, life and death, very scientifically, biologically. So if I have blood pumping through my brains, if I have my synapses from my brain uh, firing, if I have uh, breath coming through my lungs, right, then you would say I'm alive, right? Is that how God views life? No. It immediately hits us in the face that he doesn't view life and death the way that we view life and death. Now, of course, we have to be, have blood pumping through our veins. We have to have these things to happen so that we can be made alive spiritually in Christ. That is true too. But he views life and death differently than we do. A couple of smaller notes here. Uh, dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, there is a biblical distinction between trespasses and sins. Paul doesn't care about that here. He doesn't care if you knew that you were doing sins or if you didn't know you were doing sins. It doesn't matter. What matters is you were doing them and you had no way out. You had no way to make yourself alive. The second thing I want to point out is, again, talking about this word dead. I heard a sermon earlier this summer uh, from Reverend John McCabe at Family Camp with Living Hope, and he said something about, uh, I don't know if it was this passage or if it was another passage talking about the same thing, but he said, you can't fix dead. And I thought it was a profound statement. You can't fix dead. And so if you think about it, someone's on the operating table. They've got blood pumping. They've got stuff going on. They've got you know brain signals still working, that sort of thing. You can operate on that person. You can fix that. Whatever's wrong with them, you can, you can do something there. But from a modern medical perspective, if that person is dead, there is nothing that modern medicine can do to bring them back. You cannot fix that. And the same thing is true spiritually. If you have not been invited into Christ, you have not accepted Christ, and have been brought from death into life, you cannot fix that. There's only one way to do that, to fix that, and that's through Christ. And I do also want to point out here that the types of things that we did as dead people, these are specifically the types of things that Paul will talk about in Romans like 4 through 6 that we should avoid. So I want to briefly, let's briefly go to chapter 5. And I, I, I'm, not tr I'm trying not to borrow too much from our future here because we will get to Ephesians chapter 5. It might be a couple months, but we will get there. But in Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 3 it says, but sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, among holy ones. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So for Paul, this is not just an academic exercise. Once we have come into this life, once we've been made alive in Christ, there is a natural consequence to that. And that is we're to walk as a new type of people, individually, sure, but collectively is what's mostly in mind here. So let's reread these three verses again back in Ephesians chapter 2. 
And y'all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which y'all once walked. Not anymore. You once walked that way. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the point being made here is we once lived this old way. We once lived in a certain way. And to put it sort of in uh, different terminology than what we were used to, to make this sort of more uncomfortable and unfamiliar, we once lived in the way that the powers wanted us to live, the course of this world. And remember that this idea of the powers includes the devil, it includes demons, but it's also structural, it's cultural, it's economic. There's a whole system of rebellion against God and against his king, his Messiah. It surrounds us like the very air we breathe. That's the imagery we're supposed to get from this language about the prince of the power of the air. It's all around us. We're swimming in it all the time. That's the imagery. So the point that Paul's making here is we don't arrange our lives this way anymore. We do not walk according to the course of this world. And what's interesting is the word course here, uh, it's been translated by the ESV as course. It's translated similarly in a lot of other translations. But the Greek word is the word for age. It's the word for this period of time. So we don't live according to what this current age tells us to do. Well, why? Why don't we live according to the age of this world? Do we belong to this age? No, we belong to the coming age, the kingdom age. We're people of the kingdom. We're people of the coming age. So I wanted to read this quote from our our good friend Clinton Arnold, who we've been reading a lot from in this series from the ZIBBC. Here's what he had to say. The literal wording of this phrase is the age of this world. Paul thereby sets sinful behavior into the context of this present evil age He also speaks of the world in a similar way. See 1 Corinthians 3, 19 and 5, 10. Paul understands the physical creation and humanity as belonging to the present evil age. The social structures and the value systems of corporate humanity have been corrupted by sin and exert a powerful influence on people. So what this is talking about is our battle isn't just with, within ourselves. Our battle is in the systems and how our world has been set up. It's like the deck's been stacked against us in some sense. And so we now as living people and not dead people can see through these things that our culture presents to us. Um, but, and we're not supposed to imitate or follow along, go with the flow, so to speak. So I actually came up with five questions that are sort of like, wild questions to think about, but I just want to put them out there. And I'm not, like, I want to be very careful here. What I'm not saying is I'm not saying we should all, like, sell of our property and buy a commune and, like, get our own society. And, like, I'm not saying we should, like, completely hijack and get out of the world because God calls us to be in the world, not of the world, right? But my point is, is that if we can, if we can ask these hard questions and identify what the age of this world wants us to do, even if we participate in some of these systems, we can do so in a way that befits the kingdom. Like John talked about a couple months ago, uh, we can be 
people who, um, who are in this, this world, but not of it. So here are some of the wild questions. This first one is, uh, why do we go to school for 13 years? I'm thinking about kindergarten through 12th grade. Like, who made that decision? I first thought of this question when I was in school. Like, I was probably in 7th or 8th grade. I was like, why do I still have, like, five or six years left of this stuff? And I liked school, you know? But it's like, wh- just ask yourself, why do we go to school for 13 years? Does anyone know? Someone long ago made that decision, I don't know, like 100 years ago or something. Someone made that decision. It's just the course of this world. It's just the way that things are, right? And in different countries, it's different. Here's another question for you. Why do certain things go viral? Uh, In our culture, why do certain things go viral? Why do in other cultures do other things go viral? There are things that speak to our culture and speak to our time. Um, There are things that uh, I think the, the, the... the prince of the power of the air, you know, there are things that they want, the, the spiritual influences want us to pay our attention to and, and look at. Why, here's another one. Why are certain sins, and I'm thinking like in our culture, covetousness is a big one, sexual immorality is another big one. Uh, why are they more common in certain parts of the world and other sins more common in other parts of the world? Why is that? It's because of these different systems that have been set up in these different cultures. Uh, here's another one, like the why do we go to school for 13 years question. Why do we work 40-hour work weeks? Not every country does that. There's a whole part of the world called Europe, and they take like a two-month vacation in the summer. Why don't we do that here in the United States? <laughs> it's the course of this world. Uh, here's the last one. And again, I'm being very careful here. I'm not suggesting we should all be doing this. But why do we no longer live as larger family units? Up until about 100, 115 years ago, we all lived in like multi-generational family homes. That's how we all, even in the West, we lived that way. Um, that's gone away now that it's been more and more in vogue to have your own house with your own nuclear family. And then that idea from the 1950s was like a two-bedroom, one-bath, thousand-square-foot house, and it's gotten to the big houses that we see today. And so even that has changed in the last 70 years, the course of this world. It's interesting. But my point is, these are the types of questions that we should be asking ourselves because there are so many aspects of our lives that seem to be dictated for us, decisions that are made essentially without our consent. And while we must make a living, we must conform to some degree to the society around us, especially and only, I would say, when it does not violate God's commandments or (laughs) Jesus' example, I think that these are valid questions to ask and questions like this are valid to ask. Because there is a whole system around us, a whole system that has been developed over a long period of time by people who are not godly. And so we need to be able to perceive when those things are against the commandments of God and when we should, not, uh, we should opt out of those things. Now, so the first thing is this course of the world. That's the first power that we find here that leads people away from God. The second power here is a figure called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In some sense, we could say that this is the uh, sentient uh, person behind the course of this world. And who is this person, this mysterious figure? It's the one that we call the devil or Satan. 
And for more information on this, I highly recommend Living Hope, our, one of our sister churches, recently did a series uh, called Know Your Enemy. And there were two sermons in the series that I would recommend on this particular question. The one was done by Jerry Werwell called God's Arch Nemesis, where he talks about the devil. And then two weeks later, uh, Pastor Sean did one on demonology, about demons. So if you want to know more, that's, that's where I'm going to leave it. But if you want to dig into that a little bit more, I recommend those two sermons. Then finally, there is a third power mentioned, a third culprit. Uh, we, once, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, there is some debate on what this exactly means. It depends on your take of uh, original sin. Uh, so some people believe in original sin. They believe that because of Adam's sin, we're all programmed. There's different views on this. We're all either programmed to be sinful. Uh, we get the guilt of Adam, but maybe uh, not other things. You know, there's all these different views on it. And some people deny original sin completely, uh, but say that we're just like likely to sin because of all these other features uh, in the world around us. But the point that Paul is making here, regardless of our view on original sin, is that those uh, those who are made alive in Christ are distinct from those who are not yet alive, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And again, I want to I quote uh, Clint Arnold again here. Uh, he said, The combination of these three evil influences, the world, the devil, and the flesh, exerts a compelling pull on people to sin and transgress God's commandments. People need deliverance and freedom from the overwhelming power of these forces. So when we think about evangelism, we are thinking about all three of these things are in play. These are the three things that we're fighting against. We're fighting against the course of this world, just the things that we all take for granted in our culture and our society that should be questioned, that should be thought about deeper. We have the devil and his, his demons, the, people, the things that report to him. And then you've got the flesh, our own natures, our own propensity to to sin. And when you're dealing with someone who's an adult, you're dealing with not just like a tiny little bit, you're dealing with years and years of habits. And a lot of those habits might not be great habits. So in light, so we were all in this situation, we were all in this predicament, in light of our prior state, God had every right to punish us. He had every right to make no effort to save us. He gave humanity chance after chance after chance, and it seemed like we screwed up every single time. But instead of dealing with us fairly, instead of dealing with us justly, what does God give us? Incredible mercy, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that's a figure of speech, you got the noun and the verb together, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the section begins here, the good news. So he, he goes from Christ's exalted position to how low we were. And then he says, but God did this to pull us out. And the two things that he points out here, the two amazing foundational qualities of who God is that he points out here is God's richness and mercy and the great love with which he loved us. And Tim Mackey points out that there's a lot of abundance language used in the book of Ephesians. We're not there yet, but at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, there's a ton of abundance language. 
And it, Tim Mackey sort of said this, and I didn't find the actual quote, so I'm paraphrasing here. He said, God is pictured as having a massive storehouse of abundance that he shares with us. And here, specifically, that storehouse includes mercy and love. So the amazing thing about God is, we, Adam and Eve screw things up, right? And so what does God do? God bless, he tries to bless humanity by calling Abraham. So he blesses humanity by calling Abraham. Well, then Abraham's family, they go up and down. Then he, you know, he calls Moses. He goes into covenant with the children of Israel. He tries to bless the world through the nation of Israel. That goes through its ups and downs, right? He calls the king, you know, Saul. Saul doesn't work out. He calls David. He makes a covenant with David. David's grandson is the one who sees a divided kingdom. Like, you don't see a united kingdom for more than two generations. They screw it up again. So then, how does God, he continues to bless his enemies. We continue to make ourselves the enemies of God. And he continues to bless his enemies. And then he doesn't stop there. He sends his only son, Jesus. He blesses us by sending us Jesus to live for us, and to die for us. And now, what this is saying, unbelievably, this whole section we've been reading in Ephesians to this point, what we're going to continue to see, is that God has not just blessed us in Jesus, he's identified us with Jesus. Giving us extraordinary, extraordinary life and extraordinary status. That gives us access to God, as we'll see later in Ephesians. So, I want to point out something about the Greek grammar here that's really interesting. So verse 1 says, and you were dead. It starts with, and you were dead. And for those that knew the Greek language, um, and they could see that the sentence was going on and on and on. You've got all these other verbs. You've got all these other clauses, all all these other things going on. You would have been waiting for a second main verb. What's the second main verb after, and you were dead? It's made alive with Christ. So think about if you were in the original audience listening to this being read out loud by someone who could read, because likely you couldn't read in that culture. I'm not saying you can't read, but I'm saying if we could go back in a time machine, the average person listening to Ephesians was illiterate. You would have been waiting to hear that, that another shoe to drop. We were dead. Now what's the alternative? And the alternative is that we were made alive with Christ. And each of the three ver- uh, verbs used in verses 5 and 6 The three main verbs, made us alive with, raised us up with, and seated us with, they all have the same Greek prefix attached to them. So I'm sort of nerding out here for a minute. Um, It's the Greek prefix soon, which means together with, together. So, for example, the Greek word to make us alive together with is actually a compound word from to make, living, and together with. So we're literally made alive with Christ. If you could read it, that's what it would say. And it reminded me of this uh, example. Germ- uh, the language of German is famous for its compound words. And so I came up with just one example. Uh, the word die uh, Schlagzeug uh, is drums. And it's a compound word from der Schlag, which means hit, and der Zug, which means things. So it means literally to hit things. <laughs> So when you say the word drums in German, you're saying the things, hit things, hit things, hit things. That's what what it means. So here we have the same kind of idea in Greek. It's to to be made alive together with. So how do you fix dead? We talked earlier, you can't fix dead, right? You cannot fix dead. Well, how did God fix dead? You need supernatural power to be able to do that. 
It takes supernatural power. The only way you can fix death is through resurrection. That's how God did it for Jesus, and that's how he's, he's done it for us spiritually, and that's how we have that hope in the future resurrection. There's no human power. There's no human authority. There's no even evil power or authority that can raise someone up from the dead. But God hasn't just made us truly alive with Christ. It's not just that we've been given life. He's also given us status. He's raised us up and he's seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about how God could have stopped at giving us real life. And then he could have said, hey, look, I solved the Adam and Eve problem. Now you, I've given you life. Now you get to figure it out the rest of the way. That's not what God does. That's not what God does. Instead, what he does is he makes us alive. He legally adopts us as sons and daughters, and he gives us a status. He gives us a full inheritance. He gives us legal rights as sons and daughters of God. We are seated with Jesus in the heavenlies. Now, there are a lot of debates on what that exactly means, made alive together with. That's past tense. Uh, seated in the heavenlies, that's past tense. Raise us up, that's all past tense. There's a, a lot of different options on that. Does it mean that it's spiritually, that we're alive now and seated with Christ spiritually? Is it a figure of speech where the past tense is used when the future tense is meant? Uh, that's called proleptic speech. And that's common in Jewish prophecy because the understanding was they knew that the promises of God would happen. And so they could, they could call it past tense when it was still future tense. I thought Lynn Kohick had an excellent suggestion about the heiress here. And again, this is a little nerdy, but uh, I think she'll, you'll see when you get to the bottom what she means by all this. She says, therefore, the heiress tense is best understood here as constitutive because it paints the action as a whole, standing from the outside, presenting God's action without concern for when the action began or ended. Paul shows that believers in Christ have victory over death and the spiritual powers that promote evil and disobedience. Believers were spiritually dead, now are regenerated to live a holy life that honors God and blesses others, and will continue in the new heavens and new earth as they enjoy resurrected bodies, all based on God's grace exercised in Christ. So I thought this was really, really helpful. This is not, the, we don't have to think about the era as past tense or past tense that means future tense. We just understand that God is doing something. He's done it in Christ. He's doing it in our lives. And that once we come into Christ, into that fullness of relationship, then we can expect that life will continue on into the new heavens and new earth. As we said in our kingdom series, our eternal life starts the moment that we come into relationship with Christ. That's the first day, as the song goes, of the rest of our lives. It's the first day of the rest of our lives. So, with that in mind, what does all this mean for us? Again, I'd like to think through the layers of interpretation. We've looked at what they would have heard and thought about as they listened to this. How would they have applied it? Well, if you keep reading Ephesians, you get a lot of that. <laughs> but... They would have been blessed, limiting ourselves to these five verses, they would have been blessed to hear about the greatness of God's mercy on both Jew and Gentile. They would have seen how their resurrection with Christ makes a way for them to act differently in their culture, in their day, in their society. The freedom that it would give them to live as God intended them to live. So now, what does it mean to us today? How do we apply this? Well, last week we previewed a lot of what we talked about today. We talked about how we are no longer slaves to the powers. 
We're no longer slaves. We're no longer dead people. We no longer have to go with the flow of the course or the age of this world. We have been made alive with, in, and through Christ. So what is a community that really, truly believes this, that we've been made alive together with Christ? What does that look like? Well, that's what Paul's going to continue to talk about as we get into especially the middle of chapter 4 into the end of chapter 6. But I just for a moment would like us to consider the alternate lifestyle that's being presented here just briefly in 2, 1 through 5. We could walk according to the age of this world, and we see that around us everywhere. What does that look like? What does the course of this world look like? It looks like racism. It looks like sexism. It looks like economic abuses. It looks like bad governments in all shapes and sizes. (laughs) Just look at a map. Throw a dart. You'll find a bad government. (laughs) It looks like over-sexualizing our entire society, but especially in increasingly our youth. It looks like uh, evil ideas being presented as truth on every platform you can find. It looks like godlessness. It looks like lawlessness. It looks like lack of self-control. And I'm not saying that everyone out there is our enemy and everyone out there deserves our ridicule. That's not at all what I'm getting at. What I'm saying is these are the systems that are in place around us. These are the systems that we have to opt out of. And when we go and talk to someone, we're asking them to opt out of those things as well. So what is the alternative then as a living living community, a, a group of people that are truly alive with Christ? What does that look like? Well, it looks like people who are independent of the powers, independent from the course of this world, independent from the prince of the power of the air, independent from the desires of our flesh. We're independent from all these things because we serve God and we serve our Lord Jesus. So we don't agree with our culture. We don't agree with our government necessarily. We don't agree with our economic system. We see beyond these things to the spiritual things. And we invite people into relationship with God because that's the only place where anyone can find true fulfillment. And that takes love and great mercy. When we see someone who disagrees with us, who looks different than us, who is acting in these not great ways, that takes mercy. It takes love. But is that more mercy? Is that more love than God showed you? Than God showed me? No. It's less because we can't imitate God perfectly. (laughs) So in this passage, again, we see how God has blessed his enemies. He blessed us when we were his enemies. So even if someone outside the faith or someone who's struggling with their faith seems like there's a combative situation going on there, um, that's not who you're fighting. And we have the opportunity to reach out with God's great mercy and God's great love. And I just want to close by considering the flip side of this coin real quick. I know this is a little bit of a sad thought, but I had a little bit of a rough week this week thinking about all the people in the church who are dealing with uh, sicknesses and stuff. You know, we've got um, got little Nico who's been dealing with his stuff. You've got your brother Isaiah um, thinking about Kevin Carter, uh, Gary Collins, um, you know, then there's, there's even other people that I know about. And, and, you know, all this was weighing on me heavily as I was praying about it. 
and Jerry, you called me and you know mentioned the same sort of heaviness and thinking about that. And we go through times in life where we don't feel alive together with Christ sometimes, right? We all go through times when that doesn't feel like it's true. And so if what I'm saying this morning isn't resonating because you're like, man, I don't know if I really feel like this is true right now. I don't know if I really feel like I've been made alive together with Christ. I get that. I understand that. We all go through parts where we feel heaviness or we feel uh, despair, we feel disappointment. And so if that's what you're thinking this morning, if you're like, this is too good to be true, I don't, I don't know if I can put this, I don't know if I can claim this, I don't know if I can identify with this, I just want you to know that I understand that. And I think the remedy for that that I found this week, um, it was really sort of cool because I, uh, I had the thought, I was praying to God, and God was like, well, you should worship. And I was like, well, you know, I haven't worshipped as much this week as I have other weeks. You know, I could do that. And I found that as I worshipped God, that my emotions changed because I was now no longer focused on these immediate pressing, I mean, life or death concerns, sure, but like immediate pressing concerns in front of me. And I've turned my attention to God who could resolve these things. And it was just an interesting change of mindset for me this week as I thought about this section, as I thought about the struggles that people are facing in their lives and how people might be wrestling with some of these ideas, some of these questions in their own mind. And then I listened to Victor Gluckin's sermon from, I think it was last week, about prayer, prayer for the blah. And he, he talks about this exact problem in the life of Asaph from one of the Psalms. And you know he, he said the same thing that Asaph did was Asaph... What Asaph does in that psalm is he goes back to God, what God did in the Exodus, and he writes a song about that. Because in his life, he sees despair, he sees all these bad things happening, but he's like, but God, I know you're the God of the Exodus. I know you're the God who who brought our people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And so the point that I'm making this week is if you are struggling with identifying with verse 4 and verse 5, that God has made you alive together with Christ, that we don't even have to look back to the Exodus to see how God has done that for us. We look back to the cross. We look back to the resurrection. We look back to the ascension. We look back to the book of Acts and all the mighty things that God did for them. You think back to the times in your life where God did undeniable things for you. That's what I did this week. I was like, but God, remember when you did that. So if you're struggling with that this week, that's my encouragement. Press into God. Worship. Reconsider all the things that God has done for his people throughout time. Reconsider the things that he's done. Remember the things that he's done for you. Let's pray. Father, we lift up our hearts this morning because... You've truly blessed us. When we didn't deserve it, when we were dead, you unilaterally reached out to us with your love and mercy. We were your enemies, God. And yet you always bless your enemies. We see the things that you've laid out in Scripture, things that you want us to do, and we understand that these are things that we should do 
But we also understand that you have a beautiful plan for this world and that we want to participate in that. We find joy in helping others come to this life, come to this new reality. And God, we ask for your help. We ask for your help in identifying with Jesus. We ask for your help in in internalizing and feeling that we have been made alive with Christ, that we can overcome the three things that we've seen here today, the course of this world, the devil, and our flesh. We can overcome these things, God. And we ask for your help in reaching out to others with your mercy and love so that we can help others come out of that as well. So, Father, we're thankful for all that you've done for us. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.